right. Well, we're going to enjoy God's word together now. And, and I, I'll, I'm going to introduce our time together this morning in what I guess I will simply call a, a, a bit unconventional kind of a way. And it's going to feel rather abrupt uh, from, in, by way of a transition from what we've just been sharing. We just, we just talked about being with, with our God one day. And, and, um, and so now I'm going to put up some images on the screen, several of them in a row without explanation. And I would just invite you to view them and monitor your feelings as you see these images. What nerves will these pictures touch? What emotions do they trigger? What memories come to mind when you see these images. There's maybe seven of them. So take a look and just monitor yourself. I told you it would be a 90 degree right angle, didn't I? That's a pretty abrupt uh, shift in your thinking, and I apologize for that. These are several images of what? Terrorists, yes, terrorists. In our day, unfortunately, for everybody in this room, easily recognizable, and these images instantly elicit within us powerful feelings, ranging from sadness to fear, perhaps, to anger, to rage. They bring to mind painful memories. And our first impulse is surely to try and put these images out of our minds. But church family, the place that the Holy Spirit will take us today brings us not only face to face with a terrorist, but with the truth that in the eyes of God, a terrorist is worth dying for. Do I have your interest? Yeah. I think I do. (laughs) I'd invite you to take your Bible and join me, if you would, this morning in the Gospel of Luke, 23rd chapter. And there is a little note page in your bulletin. I'd ask you to retrieve that if you wouldn't mind. And if you need a Bible this morning, you, you came without yours for whatever reason, we keep some in the back just in case that would be true for you. And if you'll raise your hand, we'll be glad to share a copy of God's Word. And for any who might not have been with us uh, last time we were together last week, we launched a a brand new study series, as you can see there on your note page. It's called Seven Words. It's a series that we will be using to get our hearts and our minds ready to celebrate the glorious truths of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In these weeks leading up to Easter, and that's about six weeks from now, We're looking at the seven recorded statements that Jesus makes from the cross. They are all listed there on that little note page for you in case you're wondering what they are. And each of these seven words that Jesus speaks from the cross as he's nailed to the cross is an open window literally into his heart, into the heart of our Heavenly Father. By the time we finish with the seventh statement, I know that we're going to be ready for the glorious truth of an empty tomb and a risen Savior. Amen and amen. So our last time we were together, we stepped into the almost incomprehensible truth of the first words of Jesus, which were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus' first words from the cross were a prayer that he prays for those who are crucifying him. And now we have the privilege of stepping into a second of Jesus' crosswords spoken to, well, spoken to a terrorist. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke chapter 23, verse 43 But let's set the larger scene for ourselves before we take a closer look at this second statement from Jesus. Allow me to read for us, you following along in your Bible, beginning at verse 32. Let's set the scene into which 
the Holy Spirit has set this amazing statement from Jesus. Beginning at verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, that is, with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And we'll stop right there. This salvation moment is only recorded by Luke. None of the other gospel writers tell us about this, this exchange between Jesus and, and the others that were crucified with him. And this reflects, I believe, uh, Luke's keen interest in presenting Jesus' gospel, his saving truth, uh, and, and, and sharing with us those moments when people crossed over from death to life. This is such a recurring theme in Luke's gospel that one commentator concluded that this moment that we just read about in Luke 23 forms actually the centerpiece of his crucifixion narrative, and that may well be the case. Certainly the attitudes of these two rebels crucified with Jesus capture really the two kinds of hearts that reside within mankind. One heart leads to salvation, leads to eternal life and paradise, and the other, the the hard, unbelieving heart, leads to condemnation, death, and eternal separation from God. It's an incredibly profound and precious moment. Holy Spirit preserved, and I am glad that we get to share it together today. Though it will not be easy, at moments it will be hard. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, you preserve these moments for us. Bring them to life. Take us into the depths of them. Let us not miss what you would have for us today as a church family. And we all say together, amen and amen. The second crossword of Jesus, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's all about a terrorist getting saved. However, my guess is that is not how most of us, perhaps any of us have ever thought of the two other men who were crucified with Jesus on this Friday morning. We've never really thought of them perhaps as terrorists before. We've always heard them referred to as what? As thieves or as robbers or, or as criminals, but perhaps never as terrorists. But I would like to ask you to at least consider that possibility today as we think about these two men who who died with Jesus because in doing so, not only do I personally believe that we might be more biblically accurate in our understanding of them, but it makes the salvation story of this one man even more remarkable, more incredible, more lavished uh, with grace and mercy and forgiveness than it already is if in fact we knew that he was a terrorist. Now you're sitting at Luke 23. I'm going to ask you to keep a finger tucked here in this place because we're going to come back here. But would you run one book to the left in your Bible into the Gospel of Mark and find chapter 15. Chapter 15 is also uh, a crucifixion narrative as uh, rendered by Mark. 
I would invite you to find verse 6 of Mark 15. As you drop into this place with me, Jesus has been arrested, and Pilate, the Roman governor, after interrogating Jesus, uh, cannot find any grounds for doing anything to him. He determines that Jesus is, is innocent of all the charges that have been brought against him by the religious leaders. In fact, Pilate is frustrated and he's angry with the Jewish religious leaders for even bringing Jesus to him at all. Verse 6. Now at the feast, that is at Passover, Pilate used to release for them, for the Jewish people, one prisoner for whom they asked. And then notice this next line very carefully. Verse 7. And among the rebels, plural, an unspecified number, but more than one, among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Pause for just a moment. In the eyes of any Roman citizen or the government officials of the day, Barabbas was one bad dude. We would call him today a what? A terrorist. We would have no problem calling him a terrorist. The word rebels that Mark chooses here is the Greek word leistes, uh, which can also be translated as revolutionary. In Jesus' time, there were many attempts by radical Jewish groups to overthrow the Roman government. They were a continual thorn in Pilate's side. He was always putting down these insurgencies, these attempts to, to, to topple the, the Roman authorities. And he, he hated them and always was dealing with them. These revolutionary groups were, were highly motivated. They were politically and religiously energized. Uh, the hatred of these persons for the foreign power in place was, was off the scale. They were ready to use torture and murder and brutality and violence in any way that they could to create fear or instability within the government and advance their cause. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> that sounds like the terrorist of our day, too. The problem was that uh, most of these uh, insurgency groups were small terrorist cells that operated independently, and they could never gain really enough momentum to affect any change. But their, their presence is documented in historical records. They tried hard. And so again, verse 7, among the rebels, plural, in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, a specific uh, attempt to, to bring chaos into the Roman setting, there was a man called Barabbas. In Matthew's parallel account of this very same moment, Barabbas is called a notorious prisoner. And though it is not stated, Barabbas may well have been the ringleader of a dangerous, murderous, terrorist cell operating in Judea, killing and stealing, doing anything and everything that it could think of to make life miserable for Rome. And he is not alone. He doesn't act alone. There are other rebels, plural. He and some other members of his organization, however, of his cell have been caught. And they have been convicted of death penalty crimes. They are in prison in Jerusalem. And very soon we can surmise that they are slated to die by crucifixion because that's how non-Romans who committed crimes against the state were dealt with. They were crucified. Verse 8. And the crowd came up. And began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. In other words, once a year, Pilate would perform a PR gesture towards the Jewish people, releasing someone that the Romans were holding in confinement. He did it every year. And so the crowd was expecting that to happen again here at Passover time. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. In other words, give us the terrorist Barabbas 
they essentially coach the people into chanting. Give us Barabbas. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. We know the story. So get this. Barabbas would have been, in the eyes of Rome and Pilate, in that moment, a first century Osama bin Laden. A terrorist, a notorious terrorist. Quite possibly he and perhaps two of his best operatives were slated, maybe even that very day, to be executed by crucifixion. And because Barabbas actually does to Rome what all the Jews wished they could do but were afraid to do to Rome, it takes nothing for the religious leaders to get the people early on that Friday morning to start chanting Barabbas bin Laden's name. He's a local hero in their eyes. Free Barabbas, not Jesus. And I think these religious leaders also knew that since an execution by crucifixion was perhaps already planned for, well, Barabbas, if they can actually secure his release, puts Jesus in the place of easily being executed which was their goal from the very beginning. They simply wanted Jesus dead. So from their perspective, what a convenient way to take Jesus out. The cry to crucify makes even more sense. The ones being planned, uh, there's a a crucifixion already being planned for these guys. And so it fits right in. Pilate, well, he caves in. And for him to have let a state enemy like Barabbas slip from his grip must have really been a bitter pill to swallow, especially when he knows that Jesus is innocent. But he orders his crucifixion anyway. Tells us a lot about Pilate. Well, after this, we never hear about Barabbas again. It's likely he went into deep hiding, just like his 21st century counterpart did for a number of years. However, two of his operatives... Rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection are not so fortunate and they are scheduled to be publicly crucified. Only now they will die not with Barabbas. They'll die with the one who takes his place. Now this helps explain perhaps how things could progress so rapidly in a deadly direction For Jesus, because on Thursday night, he is sharing a meal as a regular citizen of the community, sharing a meal on Thursday night with his disciples. And he's hanging on a cross by Friday morning. How does that happen? Well, that happens because a crucifixion was already planned and Jesus has simply been inserted into it. I would propose that. When God says in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, that Jesus would be numbered with transgressors, boy, he meant it. He would be numbered not with petty thieves, but with who? With terrorists. Now, if, if you wish this morning to see this like you have always seen it, two unfortunate guys got caught who had stole some things, and they're just common thieves hanging on crosses next to Jesus. You know, I'm okay with that. Are you okay with that if, if we disagree? Yeah, would you be all right? Because I'm good. I'm good if they're, if they're robbers to you, fine. They're terrorists to me. When I put it all together, the specific choice of word that Mark uses, rebel, revolutionary, there were other rebels, plural, being held with Barabbas. These two guys are in the same prison at the same time with that terrorist. And the crimes these two committed are death penalty crimes, which would mean murder, insurrection, 
stealing and destroying government property perhaps. And then Jesus conveniently slides into an execution that appears to have already been planned. I think these guys were terrorist operatives slated to die with their leader Barabbas. Only God has another plan. Now that said, let's go back now and take a closer look at what took place on these three crosses that Friday morning. Let's imagine that someone with artistic skill was able to capture moments of the crucifixion narrative just like a courtroom artist today sketches out scenes in the courtroom. They drew sketches of this horrific scene as it unfolded, and and we're going to pull up some of those sketches, concentrating our attention on Jesus and the man to whom he will say those incredible words, truly, today, you will be with me in paradise. We're going to look at four different sketches. And the first is obviously the sketch of a man who is condemned to die. If we go back to Luke 23 and we read again verse 32, here's what it says. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. They're condemned men. Luke selects a word, criminals, that is different from Mark's word, rebels, but it goes in exactly the same direction. It's the Greek word for lawbreaker, also translated in your Bible from time to time as evildoer. Would that describe a terrorist? (laughs) No doubt. That would certainly describe terrorist activity. Luke says this man is condemned to death for what he has done. When Matthew writes of this same exact moment, he does use Mark's word, saying two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Two revolutionaries. So this man is justly condemned to death. His rap sheet is as long as your arm. His picture has been on Jerusalem's most wanted posters along with with Barabbas and the other guy on the other cross for a very long time. He's a killer. He's a murderer. He's a rebel striking back at at a power and authority that he refuses to submit to. He's, He's a revolutionary. And what a coup for the Romans to have him and his buddy nailed to crosses on Execution Hill. If only Barabbas could be hanging here, it would be perfect. But church family, as bad as this guy was, is he not representative of each of us today, truly? Let me ask you that one more time. As bad as this guy was, Is he not representative of us? We don't like to think this way. But honesty requires us to admit that the word lestes, rebel, revolutionary, rebeller against authority, or Luke's word, criminal, lawbreaker, evildoer, in fact describes each one of us before we knew Jesus. It describes each one of us before a holy, holy, holy God. This criminal was condemned not just because he had broken the laws of Rome. He was condemned because he had broken the laws of God for a long, longer time in his life. All sin, every sin, is in fact an act of rebellion against a holy God. Would you agree? Every single sin is a rebellious act. James 4.17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is what? It's sin. It's a rebellion against God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have what? Sinned and fall short of the requirements, the authority, the, 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 the demands of our God. Romans 6.23 declares, For the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death as well. Because we have all fallen short and missed the mark of God's perfection, we are all condemned. Before God. We've all acted as insurgents. Like rebels toward the authority of God. You have. I have. And we will do it again. 
the men on the cross with Jesus had their own goals. They had their own agendas that they wanted to satisfy, just like you and I do. And like the rebels on the cross, our sins bring death. Which, by the way, is another reason I believe these two men were terrorist rebels rather than common petty thieves. They more accurately represent us, I believe, condemned by sin. For apart from Jesus, we are all condemned persons, aren't we? Well, then if we look at a second sketch taken from this terrible Friday moment, we can see that this rebel who dies with Jesus is also an angry man. He's a condemned man, but he's also an angry man. And it's important for us to note this because we could, from reading Luke's account, only conclude that from the very outset of this execution, there was one rebel who was hostile to Jesus, and there was this other guy who was sympathetic to Jesus. And that's just not true. It's not true at all. Both of these guys had it in for Jesus at the beginning of this crucifixion. Both Matthew and Mark write about what really happened. In fact, maybe you'd want to join me in Matthew's gospel, chapter 27, for just a moment. Matthew 27 and find verse 38. Step into this hard to read scene once again. Matthew 27, 38. Notice how Matthew describes these two guys. Two rebels, Mark's exact same word, two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, "Who, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. And then comes verse 44. In the same way, the rebels, plural, who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now, Mark writes the same detail in his account, saying those, meaning both rebels who were crucified with him, also reviled him. In other words, as the crucifixion of Jesus begins, both of the rebels started out hurling insults and casting blasphemies at Jesus. They joined the other mockers, if you can imagine this, gathered at the cross that morning. They joined them as if they don't have enough to think about. They're condemned and, 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 and now being crucified and, and, and all of the pain and the agony that they are feeling, it, it, just, it just overflows out of their life. They hate Rome. They hate all the people who have come to watch them die. And they hate Jesus who has replaced their leader, Barabbas, who is now walking around free somewhere while the two of them are hanging on crosses for crimes that he probably instigated and ordered them to commit. They are angry men. Both unleashed their anger at the one who had been repeatedly declared to be innocent of any wrong. It seems utterly amazing that these two would taunt and mock Jesus as he hangs between them. He was not responsible for what they were going through. And yet, is this not often the way it is with people toward God? Especially when things go wrong in their life. Bad news comes. Pain is being experienced or death is imminent. Often in those moments, what do people do? They rail at God, don't they? They blame God. It's his fault. It's, it's, it's all his. He's the one who gets blamed. And, and so again, I would put to you that these two guys perfectly represent sinful us. But how starkly Jesus stands out in this moment of unjust, dark, poisoned speech. While the two terrorists lash out at him, he says nothing 
in his defense. He just absorbs it. In fact, what he does, when he does speak, he only speaks words of forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And, and, maybe it is that. Those first crosswords, coupled with statements that those in the crowd had made about Jesus. Jesus saving others, though he's not saving himself. Being the king of Israel, being the son of God, uh, reading the sign nailed above Jesus' head, this is the king of the Jews. All of that joined to the words as as the rebel hears them, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Maybe all of that converged and it began to work a change within the heart of one of these terrorist rebels. Suddenly he stops spewing out obscenities against Jesus. And he simply just looks at him. Long and hard. And that's when we see a third sketch emerge on Calvary's Hill. As a condemned and angry man becomes a changed man. If you flip that little note page over. This is such an incredible moment. It's, the, it's, the, it's my favorite moment in, the, in, in Luke's account. But we shouldn't be surprised by this moment because this is what Jesus does over and over and over again in people's lives. He changes their life. Would you agree? Yeah, I know you would agree. Why do you agree with that statement, Jesus changes lives? Because he changed your life. He changed my life. You know that's true. He changes lives. If there is any part of this crucifixion account that we can relate to, it is how Jesus took us condemned to death for our insurrection and our rebellion against the holy God. He took our heart and mine and he changed us. He changed our heart and he changed our future forever by grace through faith in him. This terrorist rebel watched how Jesus faced death. He saw the difference between someone who was prepared to die and someone who wasn't. He noticed what Jesus didn't say, and he also heard what he did say. Father, forgive them. Jesus spoke like he really did know God as a father, and he spoke as though he really believed that God heard him pray that prayer. He heard Jesus request forgiveness for those committing the most unforgivable act in the history of the world. And this prayer, apparently, coupled with all that other stuff coming in, pierced this rebel's heart, broke through his angry, seared conscience, and he knew he needed to be forgiven. And so Jesus' short prayer actually becomes a saving sermon to him. He heard the inadvertent testimony of the crowd. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Even though these words were shouted with derision, he may have pondered the first part of that. He saved others. He must have saved others. He knew he needed saving. He reads again the gospel tract nailed above Jesus' head on the cross. This is the king of the Jews. Well, he knew he needed someone in his life who would be supreme. God in that moment, by his spirit, opens his rebel's spiritual eyes and he realizes that he is in the presence of a king who is also a savior. His whole demeanor, his whole perspective changes. How did he, only hours from being condemned to an eternity without God, how did he move to a place of being promised paradise forever with God. How did that happen? What was the progression of steps from the freedom fighter's faith experience? What were the progression of steps that led to his salvation? Well, if we look again carefully at verses 39 to 42, the the journey to salvation is not hard to see. 
First, he begins by acknowledging God as being holy and just. If you go back to Luke 23 and you find verse 39, when he heard his fellow rebel in verse 39, out of those ugly words that were dripping with sarcasm, aren't you the Christ? Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself. And oh, by the way, save us too. He comes up against that guy who was one of his fellow companions. Maybe for the first time ever, he stood up to him. Certainly it'll be the last time he does that. His partner in terror just wanted to be off that cross so that he would be free once again to live the sin and rebellious life that he had always lived. He just wanted off. Many do the same today. We call out for help and we ask God to take away our pain and our suffering knowing full well we're going to go on living just exactly the same way we've always lived. He's like that. But look at verse 40. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, the same sentence of death? Don't you fear God? True salvation must always start with God, mustn't it? Recognizing that he is holy, recognizing that he is just, he deserves first place in our lives, and we are ultimately going to be accountable to him for our life. If we don't get this, or we're unwilling to acknowledge this truth, we're never going to see our need for a Savior. Would you agree? It starts with this. And then next, this rebel admitted his personal sin. His guilt. Everyone on the hill witnessed his confession. They heard it, as did Jesus. First part of verse 41, he said to the other rebel, And we indeed are justly condemned to death. We are receiving the due reward of our deeds. It's a confession of guilt. He didn't gloss over. He didn't excuse. He didn't rationalize his, his, his life choices or his terrorist behavior. He came right out and he says, man, we're busted. We're wrong. We're guilty. We're getting what we deserve. I am a sinner and I deserve to die. And in his heart, I would submit to you, is exactly reflecting in this moment of crucifixion the heart of the man in the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18. Do you remember this parable in Luke 18? A proud religious leader and a hated tax collector both go up to the temple to pray. Do you remember the story? And the religious leader looks at the tax collector and he says, God, thank you that I'm not like him. And then he goes through this list of all of his personal accomplishments, all the good things that he has done for God. And he feels really good about himself and he's looking up at heaven the whole time. The tax collector, he can't even bring himself to do anything but look at the floor. And Jesus says he's beating his chest as he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus finished that story in Luke 18 by saying that it was the tax collector who went away from the temple forgiven, not that other guy. This is the heart of the repentant rebel. And he reminds us that not one of us can be saved until we first admit that we are lost, that we're condemned, and we are deserving of hell as much as any terrorist. Would you agree? Well, then follows this confession of faith in Jesus. The rebel knows that that Jesus is the key in this moment. He knows that Jesus does not deserve his cruel cross, but but this rebel goes even farther by saying this in verse 41. This man has done nothing wrong. Now that can only be said of one who had never sinned. So in the most simple and basic way, this dying rebel is saying by way of a confession, I believe, Jesus, that you are divine Messiah the promised Lord and King as that sign above your head declares. 
And I believe in you that you are the deliverer long foretold. I believe. Romans 10, 9 and 10. These are words you know well. You suppose we could read them aloud together off the screen? Let's do that. Let's do that together. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In this moment, the crucified terrorist cannot even do all the parts of these two verses because the resurrection of Jesus hasn't happened, right? It will happen, but it hasn't happened yet. But he can and he does believe in Jesus as both Lord and deliverer, confesses with his mouth, and in this moment, that proves to be enough. And we know that as we observe the fourth step of this faith progression which comes in the form of a request. After he acknowledges his accountability to God, admits his own sinfulness, and confesses Jesus' identity as sinless Messiah, he says in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. It's a request. And what this reminds us of is the fact that salvation is not automatic. It's not just something that God throws out over the human race and if it lands on you, great. You get saved. It's a pardon that must be asked for and received if it's going to be activated in your life. Remember me. John chapter 1, verse 12 says it this way. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become sons of God. We ask for and we accept God's pardon. That's all that we can do. We bring nothing else to the table. Speaking of doing, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Does that not remind us here that this rebel's confession comes with no promise of, of good works or efforts on his part to try to win the favor of God. If Jesus remembers him at all and has a heart for him at all, it's going to be a, an, an act of pure grace on Jesus' part, on God's part. So many get confused on this point in our world today. They think that you, you have to do certain things. You have to be a certain way. You have to, to go to church. You have to do God's stuff. And, and maybe if you do enough of it, God will be pleased with you and he'll invite you to share heaven. There are a lot of people who think that. But being saved forever has nothing to do with that kind of wrong thinking. This rebel is, is the proof text for this. He can't do anything to try to impress God in this moment. Agreed? He can't walk in paths of righteousness because he's got a nail through his feet. He can't perform any good deeds because he's got nails in both of his hands. He can't turn over a new leaf and live a better life for God because he's going to be dead in a matter of hours. He couldn't clean himself up if he wanted to. He was saved in this moment, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen. Now, truly making this rebel's confession all the more remarkable is that Jesus does not look like he's in any position to save anybody. Agreed? His enemies are triumphing. All of his friends have bailed on him and he is dying by crucifixion. This rebel is expressing, I believe, the purest form of faith that we find anywhere in scripture. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Is that not pure? 
Nothing in this moment looks like a conquering king. It's expressed before Jesus triumphantly cries, It is finished. It's expressed before the temple curtain is torn in two. It's expressed before the earthquakes. It's expressed before the centurion says Jesus is indeed innocent, the Son of God. It's expressed before there's, there's the resurrection. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God. Well, in this moment, we know both God and Jesus are immensely pleased. This rebel's faith confession is real. It's powerful. It's beautiful. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And it prompts Jesus to say, I tell you the truth. Today, today, you will be with me in paradise. And instantly, the once condemned, angry, now changed man becomes a heaven-bound man. How cool is that? He acknowledged God. He admitted his guilt. He confessed Jesus. He requested salvation. And Jesus, even in this unimaginable moment, the final hours of his his earthly life, in the depths of his intense sorrow, on his way to becoming sin for us. Soon he'll be cut off from the Father to bear the full wrath for our sin upon himself as he's nearing death's door. He nevertheless hears the cry of a sinful but believing man in the 11th hour and the 59th minute of his earthly journey. And he says to him, because you believe truly today, you will be with me in paradise. The one, the best proof text we could ever have that it is never too late to confess Jesus and have your eternity changed forever. This is the text. That this rebel confessor was hopeful of being remembered is very clear. Remember me. But he couldn't be certain if Jesus would remember him until Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Today, today, you're going to be with me. In the original, the word today is the very first word in the sentence. It's placed there by Luke purposely to show that, that, that this is the, the, the very day, the, the dying day, the crucifixion day. This day, this repentant rebel would cross over from this world into an eternity with God forever. Reminds us that for one who is in Jesus by faith, to be absent from this body is to be what? Present with the Lord. Do you believe that? That's what, that's what Jesus says. Absent from this body, present with the Lord, when your faith is in me. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Ask 1 Corinthians 15. I love how Jesus crashes through this man's simple request. He says, remember me. Jesus, remember me. And Jesus says, oh, no. Oh, no. I'm not going to simply remember that you were here in this moment. He went way beyond that with, with his words. And does it not echo Ephesians 3.20? Now to him who is able to do what? immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. The rebel says, remember me, please. And Jesus says, no, no, today, today you will be with me in paradise. We could translate the thought this way. You'll be with me in a very personal way. I wish we knew his name. At its heart, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship between a forgiven sinner and the only living God. That's what, that's what Christianity is. It's a relationship. Today, you will be with me forever.
And, and just as we wrap this up, Jesus promises him a place in paradise. What's paradise? Paradise is where God is. It's where God is. And it's the very same promise given to this terrorist that was given to the disciples on the, the night before the crucifixion. Do you, do you realize this? You remember what Jesus said to his disciples that they were in the upper room, they were sharing a meal together, John 14. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, well, I, I will come again and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. That was a promise given to his disciples. The terrorist rebel gets the very same How cool is that? Immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, truly, today, you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray together. What do we say to you, Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit? What do we say? What do we say but thank you? Thank you for preserving this moment on the cross, this salvation story for us. It's our story. That rebel is us. And what you did for him, you have done for us through faith in Jesus. What do we say to you but thank you? In this room right now, it is possible that you have never asked for Jesus to come into your life. The offer is there. The way has been made, but you've never asked. Now's the time. Ask. Ask Jesus to come into your life, to forgive you, a rebel, a revolutionary, one who has fought against the authority of God. Confess that. Come. Confess. Ask. And receive. And if we can help you in that journey, boy, let us know. Now, Heavenly Father, we just celebrate you and the promise of paradise. We look forward to the day when absent from this body, we will be present with you. That's your promise from the cross. We say thanks in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.